0: Romans 1, a mechanical engineering professor, was known for his difficult classes, his incredibly difficult exams. He's notorious for this, and he began to get upset because he thought his exams don't even really reflect the accuracy of his lectures and the depth of his lectures and the depth of the textbooks. So he would tell his students, study the textbooks, study my lectures, and those will be the tests on the exam. And so he scheduled his final exam, and he decided that this exam was going to truly reflect his lectures and the depth of his lectures and the textbooks. And he told his students, plan on taking the exam starting early in the morning and it might take you all day, you could take a break, and maybe even into the night. So, the students came, they took their seats, and he passed out the exam, and he cautioned them, make sure that you read it all the way to the end before you begin answering. And as the students opened the exam, they found they hadn't studied nearly enough. As they turned the pages, the exam didn't seem difficult, it seemed impossible. And if you've ever spoken to an engineering student, my son, uh, our oldest son, graduated with an engineering degree. Now he's in graduate school for mechanical engineering. And he shared with me that many times, they'll give them maybe four or five problems, but each problem will take hours and hours to solve. Each problem with math and physics and bringing engineering to bear. And so this requires a vast amount of knowledge. So, this exam began to accurately reflect what kind of knowledge is required for engineering. So, the professor reminds me of the Apostle Paul, but more specifically, the actual demands of the law of God. Because Paul, who wrote the book of Romans, he spends the first two and a half chapters of Romans describing the demands of the law of God in other words Paul gives the human race he gives us that final exam he diagnoses us if you look at chapter 1 Paul is he's speaking about the sins of the people out there the sins of the culture And he lists some of the heinous sins of the culture. If you look at chapter 1, verses 18 through 19, Paul says that even though people can plainly see that there is a God, I mean just through what I just said, through math, through physics, through the order of the universe, through cells. If you, if you study a cell, you see that a cell will sacrifice itself in order to heal the human body. If you look at the nervous system of the human body, to think that that happened by chance, Paul says in verses 18 through 19 that they suppress the truth, that they can plainly see that there is a God. Because God has shown it to them. I mean, how can someone look at the beauty of creation? How can someone hear a masterpiece, a great symphony, that someone made in the image of God, composed, created, and think that that happened all by chance? Paul says that's the most heinous sin of all, is denying the existence of God. And then Paul unpacks one sin after another as he unpacks the demands of the law of God. And it's amazing to me that many times as Christians, we tend to fixate on one or two or three sins in Romans 1 that perhaps we don't personally struggle against, and we fixate on those. And we should teach about sexual sin. It's rampant in our culture, even in the church. But we can't miss The other sins that Paul sets right alongside those sins that many of us find to be so heinous. In verse 21, we see that one of the greatest sins of all is the sin of not giving thanks. Lack of gratitude for the blessings God has given us. That one of the greatest sins is to become futile in our thinking. To be foolish in our thinking. For our hearts to be darkened. Not giving thanks, in verse 29, he lists these other sins of of coveting. How many of us are guilty of that? Of envy, of not wanting someone else to have something that we want. Of strife, unnecessary conflict. Of deceit, and even gossiping. He sets that sin right alongside some of the other sins that we find so detestable. Paul lists these respectable sins, the sins we come to accept in ourselves and in others. Paul's like this engineering professor, showing us that there is so much more that we don't know. There's so much more to our sin, that it's way, way deeper than we could ever imagine, and that we still don't get it. Because Christians then and Christians today, we read Romans 1, and we thank God that we aren't like those people out there. And so Paul, in chapter 2, he throws a haymaker at Christians. He did it to them, and he does it to us today. In verse 3 in chapter 2, he says, why are you judging them? You're just as bad. We judge the people out there and yet we practice the same things. I mean, who do we think we are in the way we judge? Verses 21 to 24, I mean, we see there, Paul says, those who teach others, do you teach yourself? Those who preach, do not steal. Do you steal? Do you commit adultery? Do you worship idols? Are there things in your life that have come before God? That's what idolatry is. Paul says we do the very things we preach against. And then he says that Christians have less of an excuse than those people out there because we have the Scriptures. Paul says that in verse 18 in chapter 2. And you know his will and approval is excellent because you are instructed from the law and then in Romans 3 2, he says that they were entrusted with the very oracles of God. That we have the scriptures. That we're instructed deeply in the scriptures. In other words, we judge the people out there and we think that we are getting away with something or we think that we're not even that sinful. We don't take responsibility for our actions. We see this in the way that we blame shift even in relationships. I mean, think about how naturally it comes for us to blame shift in conflicts, in marriages, in relationships, at work, the way that we shift blame off of ourselves and onto others, and it comes so naturally to us. I mean, remember all the way back, Adam and Eve in the garden. So here they are. They have been given everything. They're walking with God. They're able to name all of the creatures. There's no sin at that point. They have perfect communion with God, and they're told you can eat of any tree in the garden except this one. They didn't need to eat from that tree. So what do they do? They fall. And so then they hide, and God comes searching for them. And God calls out for Adam Adam where are you and he finds Adam says what have you done and what does Adam say she gave it to me and then God questions Eve and what does Eve say the snake made me do it I mean this comes naturally to us people who don't accept original sin which means that sin is passed down to us from Adam I mean, this comes so naturally to us. And that's what Paul is saying here, pointing the finger at people out there. Who do we think we are? Those of you who are on social media... And writing things that are harsh and judgmental about whatever, whatever is out in the culture or whatever it is that's on your mind. <laughs> I mean, sometimes you read through people's social media and it's one thing after another after another. Complain about this, complain about that, complain about that politician, complain about work, passive aggressive thing about something going on in their lives. Stop it. Knock it off. Who do we think we are exactly? being judgmental of the people out there, when Paul says, we are the same. And so he takes it very deep. And if you think I'm going deep, I'm not going deeply enough. Paul diagnoses the human race. He shows us how deep our sins go, that our problem isn't that we water down the law of God. Our problem is is that we don't see the law of God as being what it truly is that we don't go deep enough into the law of God. We think that if we haven't committed the physical act of adultery, that somehow we've kept the commandment, do not commit adultery. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, if you have looked lustfully at another, you've committed adultery. We think that because we haven't punched somebody, because we held back and didn't punch them, or didn't ram our car into a horrible driver, we think that because we did that, that we haven't really committed murder. Jesus says, if you have an angry thought, if you're angry with your brother, you've committed murder. I didn't say it. Jesus said it. Jesus says again and again and again, listen, that our thoughts in our hearts... The thoughts that we never say, the secret thoughts, the things that we think, the things that we think when we sin, the things we think about others, the things we believe in our hearts and say in our hearts are words before God. Our thoughts are words before God, even if you haven't said it. They're words before God. Every thought you have, every lustful thought you have, every deceitful thought you have, every secret that you have, those thoughts are words before God. It's as if you have spoken those words to God. That's disgusting. I don't know about you, but for me, if all of my thoughts for all of my years were to be broadcast before God because they're broadcast before God, And then if any man, after chapters 1 through 3, 9, if anyone sitting here still believes you have some righteousness, still believes you have some right to spout off on social media or do whatever, Paul leaves no man standing in chapter 3, verse 10. He says, none is righteous, and just in case you didn't get it the first time. He says, no, not one. And then just in case he didn't get it the second time, he repeats it and says, no one does good, not even one. Not me, not you, not your favorite pastor who goes on and on and on about how we should be perfect or do this or do that and doesn't preach the gospel, whatever it may be. None of us does good. Not even one. No one is righteous. He repeats it again. It's like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He goes through the commandments. He unpacks them. Like I said earlier, he talks about lustful thoughts, saying that's adultery. He talks about anger, saying that's murder. He goes on and on, says that if your brother says, come with me one mile, go with him two miles, to give, to continue, to forgive. And then he finally says in verse 48 in Matthew 5, Here's the sum of the whole thing. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the law of God. So Paul is cracking us open from chapter one through three, in the middle of three. That's what the law of God does. So Paul is going into the deep recesses of our hearts. You know anytime time we think that we're something, God quickly reminds us that we're nothing, you know, like what he just did on the phone. (laughs) So Paul is like that engineering professor. He's imposing an actual, accurate test. The test isn't, are you nice? The test isn't, are you a nice person? The test isn't, I don't do this, I don't do that. It goes so much deeper than that. And that is the practical. That's the practical of the sermon. You know what to do. We know how to love our wives, men. We know what we need to do as parents. We know what we should be doing as employees. That's not the problem. We don't know how deep it goes. That's the problem. And that's the practical, is to crack open our hearts. It's an accurate diagnosis of our condition, and it shows us our great disease, and that's what Paul does, the gospel of Jesus Christ, if the law of God cracks us open, listen, the gospel of Jesus Christ mends us together. It mends us together. We should come to the point right now in this sermon where we feel kind of hopeless in some ways. We should kind of feel discouraged. The problem is many sermons end right here. In Jesus' name, amen, go do it. The problem is, the law doesn't give us the power to do it. it. doesn't give us the power to do it. It just humbles us. And so in 321, finally, Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Romans 5, 6 through 8, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Perhaps for a good person, one would dare to die, but God shows His love for us in that while we were sinners, while we were lawbreakers, while our thoughts were words before God, Christ died for us. So, Paul from 321 to the end of chapter 11 relentlessly and passionately. Tells us about the Deliverer. He diagnoses us in the first couple of chapters. And then he tells us about this Deliverer, about Jesus, about Jesus Christ, the only one who can heal us, the only one who can save us. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. So when we come to Jesus, when we become a Christian, he's the author of that, but he's also the perfecter as we become more and more like him. So those of you who are sitting here and have been Christians for decades, you need Jesus as much today, if not more, as the perfecter of your faith, as you did when he was the author of your faith. Nothing but Jesus. And so before Christmas, we left off at Romans 7. And Romans 7 is still describing our lives Still describing our lives in the Deliverer, Jesus. Still still describing it. Paul's still telling us what it means to believe into Jesus. And yet, if you'll remember, Paul says that the Christian life in Romans 7 is a life of great contradiction. That we are simultaneously sinner and saint. Paul (laughs) heart-wrenchingly deeply, personally, describes his own experience in Romans 7. That even though he was saved, even though he was a leader in the early church, even though he wrote most of the New Testament, even though he saw Jesus face-to-face, even though he performed miracles, even though he was a great apostle, he continued to struggle against sin. He continued to struggle against indwelling sin. In chapter 7, verse 15, I don't understand my own actions. I don't do what I want to do. The very thing I do is what I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. That should cause your heart to stir. I can barely say those words without breaking down, because of my own sin, my own indwelling sin. Paul says, I want to do the right thing. Notice he says that, I want to do. The thing I want to do, I don't do. That's proof that he's a Christian, because a non-Christian doesn't want to do the right thing. But his flesh adheres to him. It sticks to him. He has a renewed nature as a Christian, but that flesh still sticks to him, and it makes him do the thing he doesn't want to do. And finally, Paul cries out in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will save me? Who will save us? Who will deliver me from this body of death? What he's describing in Romans 7 is something that we sang about earlier, is this lack of assurance that we can have as believers. Because of this sin, because we do the things we don't want to do, sometimes we question, are we really saved? We sang about this blessed assurance earlier. It's amazing that Tyler picked that song out, because we didn't even talk about this. This idea of assurance of salvation that so many struggle with. You're sitting here, you're thinking, if you only knew my sin. We all know the feeling. We sin. We do what we don't want to do. The thing we know we shouldn't do. And we don't call ourselves a wretch like Paul does, because that was his term. We call ourselves a dummy. Oh, dummy that I am. Men, you know, I don't know if you've probably been here before. What a jerk I am. I can't believe I just spoke to my family that way. I didn't want to do that. But somehow it came out. Why did I say that? Not why did they say that. Why did he do that? Why did this politician do that? Why did she do that? Why did this person? Why did I say that thing? Why did I do that? Why did I commit that sin yet again? And our hearts are grieved. And that's how we know we're saved. That's how we get that assurance. Because we say, not, I can keep going on sinning. Not, it's okay, God will forgive me. That's a true mark that maybe you're not saved. But when your sin grieves your heart, Maybe not initially, but eventually it grieves your heart when a person has pointed out their sin again and again and again, and they won't receive it, and they won't hear it. They need to question if they truly are a Christian. But if your sin grieves you like Paul's sin did, and you're like, I can't believe I did this again. What was I thinking? That's proof that your heart is humbled. Paul says, who will deliver me? but thanks be to God for Christ Jesus. And that is what brings us to the great eight. That's where we're at. Romans chapter eight. It's been called the greatest chapter in Romans, and we know that the Bible is the greatest book ever written. So it's the greatest chapter and the greatest book ever, in the greatest larger book ever written. Romans 8 has been called the Mount Everest of Scriptures because it takes us to the very heights of all of our benefits in Christ Jesus. So right on the heels of Romans 7, right on the heels of this awful struggle, where we have to wonder, where we struggle with that lack of assurance. You're sitting here thinking of all the sins you've committed, Especially as I was unpacking, just on the surface, the law of God. And you say, I'm even worse than I thought. And that's the message of the gospel. That we are way, way, way worse off than we ever believed we are. And we are way, way, way more loved and forgiven than we ever dreamt imaginable. And so in Romans 8.1 Paul begins this Mount Everest of the Bible with these words. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the engineering professor creates this exam that he believed most accurately reflected the rigors of his lectures in the textbooks. The professor tells his students to read through the entire exam before you take it, Before you answer the first question, make sure you go to the end. He warns them. So the students open the exam, and as they look at it, it's worse and worse. It's more and more difficult than they could ever imagine. You can hear audible groans in the lecture hall. But on the last page, at the very bottom, is a note from the professor. You can complete the exam as written, or you can sign your name, at the bottom, and I will give you an A+. Some of the students didn't listen to the professor. He had told them to read all the way to the end before starting the exam, but they didn't listen, so they sweat their way through trying to answer the questions, justifying themselves as they went. Perhaps this answer is good enough. He better take this for an answer. But no one, especially not a student, could come close to answering the questions with the kind of detail the professor required. Other students just got angry when they saw how difficult it was and stormed out, not even looking at the last page. Others looked around and they, they saw the last page. They saw the statement at the end, just sign it to get the A+. Plus. And they saw other students happy signing it getting their A plus and walking out, and it made them angry. There's no free rides here in this world. What kind of grace is this? I studied hard for this. I can do it. They aren't doing it. In fact, I'm going to prove it, that I can do it. So take the exam, don't sign the end, and I'll just be happy with my C minus. Romans 8.1 is the Last line of the exam. And our hearts, if we're honest with ourselves, rebel against this. Romans 8.1 is the fine print. In fact, Romans 8 in its entirety is the last line of the exam. But thankfully, it isn't hidden for us. It's written in bold face, the very top of this series. There is now... In the present, right now, in the middle of whatever you're struggling with, whatever sin you're struggling with right now, there is now no condemnation. Paul's been building to this moment from chapter 321. Paul's saying, here is the truth that you need to build your entire life upon. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the truth that needs to be at the top of the exam of your life. No condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. I am so thankful that the last line of the test was shared with me practically at the beginning of my life. I've shared this before. I should share it every Sunday when I was four years old. I was struck with a lack of assurance of salvation. Not just then, but I could even anticipate my sins to come. How could God remember me? How could God know anything about me? I had asked God into my heart too many times, was that going to disqualify me? That's what a little four-year-old thinks. Know that, parents. It was terrorizing. And I've shared with you before that my dad shared with me Romans 8.1. Just Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I believe at that moment I was saved. I was converted. I was given a new heart, a new spirit. And he didn't even share the rest of Romans 8 with me. Just that. Because if the beginning of Romans 8 is no condemnation, the end of Romans 8 is no separation. No condemnation, no separation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And how could there be? How could there be condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? How could anyone or anything condemn us? If you fled to Jesus... If he is your rock, your refuge, your strength, how could anything condemn us? It reminds me of verse 33 in Romans 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. We need to write that on our arms. Or those of you who are a little bit more progressive, tattoo it on your arms. It is God who justifies. Who's going to bring any charge against us? Paul says, line them up. Who's going to bring a charge? Who? Let them try to accuse you. Let them try to condemn you. That's why you don't need to respond to every little criticism. That person saying this about me or thinking that about me. You don't need to respond. Who can accuse? Who can condemn? It is Christ who justifies. Will the law of God condemn you? We heard earlier that if we don't even come close to meeting the demands of the law of God, not because the law is bad, the law is good, the law is perfect, the law revives the soul, the law shows us what is pleasing to God. It's perfect and just. The law cracks us open and shows us the practical. The law being diagnosed, diagnosing us, is practical. But will the law condemn you? If you're in Christ Jesus, Jesus kept the law perfectly on your behalf, on my behalf. Jesus bore the condemnation that we deserved for breaking the law. Will Satan condemn us? He can accuse us, but Jesus has answered every accusation that he has against us on our behalf. Will your own sin, that Romans 7 struggle, will that condemn us? You may be thinking, if you only knew my sins, if you only knew how I sinned in my body just this past week. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus forgave our sins. Our sins can't condemn us. He paid the entire price. Verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, listen, who is at the right hand of God, and is interceding for us. He's taken our condemnation. He's pleading our cause right now. While we're singing in here, me, in a very lame manner, he is pleading our cause before the throne of God. We have a strong and perfect plea because of Christ. We have a standing with God that's the same as Jesus is standing with God. When God looks at us, he sees someone else's righteousness. Thankfully, I wouldn't want him to look at me and see this past week's righteousness. And I've been a Christian since I was four years old. But he looks at us and he sees a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, being found in Christ, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. Doesn't that excite you? Doesn't that make you want to shout out, to sing from your heart, to live for Jesus, that we can stand before God and be embraced as a son, as a daughter? Augustus Toplady was a great hymn writer, known most for an amazing song, Rock of Ages, And he wrote in his hymn, A Debtor to Mercy, alone, that those in heaven, those of who have been glorified by God, those who have gone on before us, listen, they're more happy but not more secure. Those in heaven, those who have been glorified, those, my brother who died in 93 in a car accident, those of you who have lost loved ones, we've lost some amazing people in our church over the past couple of years amazing people who are with God now. They are more happy than we are. I will give them that. Way more happy, but they're not more secure. They're not more saved than you are or I am. Paul doesn't say, because he tells us how, there's no condemnation. This is important. How is it that there's no condemnation? Paul doesn't say there's no condemnation for those who are in American politics, for those who choose the right side, the lesser of two evils, or whatever it's being called now. Paul doesn't say there's no condemnation for that guy who's a family man, or that woman who's just a great mom. Paul doesn't say there is no condemnation for that person who is into their job. Or into your children, even. Paul doesn't say there's no condemnation for those who are in the Philadelphia Eagles. I mean, I'm a sports fan. I hope they go far. But, you know, we put so much emphasis. It's our God. You have these people, they die, and there's funeral, and they talk about, well, I really love the Eagles. I mean, they're finally raising the banner up in heaven now for him and to fill. You know what I mean? That's, that's it? Sports? Football? Country? One of hundreds of countries? That's it? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're not in Christ Jesus, you're still under condemnation. Because if you aren't in Christ, you are in Adam. The law still condemns condemns you. Your sin still condemns you. Why does being in Christ, Jesus, save us from condemnation? Why? He tells us why. It isn't because God takes our sin lightly. It isn't because he lets us off the hook. It isn't like the way we parent, where we say, when we believe we're giving grace to our kids, that means we're not going to punish them in the exact way they deserve. That's not at all what's happening here. Paul tells us why it is possible that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus in verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Why are we saved? Why are we not under condemnation? We're set free from the law of sin and death. What is the law of sin and death? The law of sin and death is that if we sin once, we die. Our souls die. If we sin, we die. The wages of sin is death. So we're either under that or we're under the Spirit for everyone. Instead of our soul dying, our soul is set free in Christ because of this law of the Spirit of life. What is that? The law of the Spirit of life is the work of the Holy Spirit of Christ. So Paul calls him the Holy Spirit of Jesus. Somehow it's different persons, one God, but it's still the Holy Spirit of Jesus, nothing but Jesus. The Holy Spirit gives us a new heart. The Holy Spirit of Jesus takes residence in us and changes us from the inside out. The Holy Spirit sets us free. The Holy Spirit sets up a new kingdom in our hearts where the Lord Jesus Christ is king. The only political statement you should be concerned with, is this one. Christ Jesus is Lord of lords and King of kings. That's it. <laughs> Verse 3 tells us how we are set free. For God has done with a law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh. In other words, as we've said, the law of God is good and perfect, but the law of God doesn't have any power to change us. Certainly no power to save us. Why? Because the law is bad? Because the law is too stringent? Why can't the law, he tells us in that verse, because of my sin, because of me, James tells us later, the reason we have quarrels and conflicts and anger isn't because of the other person, it's because of us, because of our hearts. Our sin weakens the law. So what? I mean, it should be obvious by now. How does this change our lives? Verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, and here it is, who walk not according to that flesh that adheres to us, that old man, that dying man, but according to the Spirit, according to our renewed nature, according to the new man, the new spiritual heart, When we walk according to the Spirit, we live out, listen, of the righteousness of Christ. And we're going to see that more as we go on next week. But it's worth saying that we don't have a righteousness of our own. I just can't believe some of the debates I see, some of the theological debates about this. Yes, I have a righteousness of my own. No, you don't. No, you don't. I don't care who you're talking about. I don't care what famous preacher, what theologian. Paul tells us in Galatians, if an angel himself were to stand here and tell us another gospel that you can trust in your own righteousness, don't believe it. Even if an angel comes and tells us that. So certainly don't believe it if you read it on a blog somewhere. We are given, imputed, Christ's righteousness. Does that mean we just live the way we want to? We have Christ's righteousness. It's perfect. Why do we want to be holy if we already have this righteousness? Jesus' righteousness, listen, is like a fountain. I mean, have you ever seen a great fountain in a park? I mean, a big one that just overwhelms the whole area with rushing water and sound, and you couldn't possibly add too much to that fountain, but you could. You could add this little bottle of water to it. That fountain is Christ's perfect righteousness imputed to us, and our personal righteousness flows from that. It flows out of Christ's righteousness. It can't help but flow from it. Verses 5 through 8, because of this fountain of righteousness, we can, you can win the battle happening in your mind. Verses 9 through 11, because of this fountain of righteousness, we can be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verses 12 through 13, because of this fountain of righteousness, we can resist temptation. Verses 18 through 25, we can have hope. Verses 28 through 31, because of this fountain of righteousness, we can rise above Whatever circumstances you're facing, verses 38 through 39, because of this fountain of righteousness, nothing can separate us from the love of God. What is the header of your life? I mean by that, the the very top of the exam, whatever you want to call it, what are you living out of? Are the words of Romans 8-1 written across the top of your life? Is that where you're getting your strength? In the opening of Romans, as it pertains to reach church as a whole, Paul said that these Romans, these Christians, people who had never been visited by an apostle, never been visited by Paul, he said that they were famous in all the world for the way they raise their children? No. Famous in all the world for the political statements that they made on social media? Nope. Famous in all the world because their football team finally won? No. Famous in all the world because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. These Roman Christians were living under the bold-faced words, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I want us to be famous for the gospel. I want people to say of Reed's church, I'm not sure I believe the gospel or, or what they believe exactly, but those people love Jesus. I don't want them to say what Gandhi said, He said, I love your Jesus, I can't stand your Christians. I don't want him to say that. And we could fight that and argue with that. It's well-deserved. Well-deserved. Me at the top of the list. I want them to look at us, and I want them to be pressing their noses up against these windows to see what the joy is all about, and to see what these relationships and this love and mercy and forgiveness is all about and change in our lives. And I want them to say they love Jesus. They're not condemned. They're in Christ Jesus, this Jesus I read about in the Bible. They're about nothing but him, about nothing but Jesus. Their lives overflow like a fountain with love and good deeds that must come out of their love for Jesus. Romans 8 is the Mount Everest of the Bible because it takes us to the height of the benefits we have by telling us these benefits, the things God has done. It's all about what God has done, not what we do. And we're going to see that as this unfolds. I want to encourage you to be here during this series. I'm glad you're here this morning. I'm glad you've chosen to be here. If you don't know Jesus, or you're far from him right now, I want to encourage you to continue. I think we're going to be attacked. I think you're going to be attacked because this is not a message that the world, that even our flesh, and certainly not Satan wants to go out into this world at all. All the other stuff, that's all good. Not this, though. I was at a meeting yesterday in closing, uh, our Presbytery. We're Presbyterians, so we have a Presbytery above us, and we had a meeting, a subcommittee meeting, and I was talking to a pastor. Uh, he started in this church, and we helped him plant a church years ago. Still a really dear friend, and we are in zone one. That's our children's area, and we redid that area to make it very child-friendly. It's just beautiful, if you haven't seen it. It's just amazing. And afterwards, we were, we were just talking about some things, some dreams that we have, that he has, and on our back wall are three words. And I said, look at those three words right there, because he was asking me about how we could partner together. And I said, those three words, that's what I want to be about. I don't want to do anything unless it's about those three words. Those three words, nothing but Jesus. Jesus. You thought we were going to get through the entire sermon without me saying it. Not so fast. Nothing but Jesus. It could be a silly slogan, a stupid tagline, an arrogant tagline, or it could change our lives, change our area, the country, change the world, perhaps, because it's desperately needed, even in churches. People I talk to who are in churches, even pastors, they look puzzled want to talk to them about what we're about. What do you mean? Nothing but you know, I'm like that's the whole new testament. That's the whole thing. There's nothing but Jesus. And that's what Romans 8 is all about.